Some of you are new to retreat, and um, and uh, this is going to be. I'm going to give a Dharma talk. So I want to say a few words about listening to a Dharma talk, because we're quite conditioned by our academic experience um, and in how we listen to talks, and and we generally. Uh, approach a talk with the attitude of um, kind of getting all the information we can or, you know, remembering everything. And and that's not necessarily the best way to listen to a Dharma talk. I, uh, Roxanne talked about this a little bit last night. Um, but when we, when we listened to a, a talk, we're not just listening with the mind. You know, we're listening with the heart, we're listening with the whole body, and we're tuning in to what resonates within us. And it might resonate in a way of, yeah, that's really, I, that really sounds true for me, that's right. It also might resonate in a way that bothers us a little bit, and that's, that's a different kind of resonating, and it can be, it can be helpful to... Um, to look at that, to become mindful of that process and what's going on uh, in that and um, kind of taking it in. Maybe there's a, um, a resistance for some reason. So just notice what touches you. Um, and you know, it doesn't mean that we, we don't have any uh, judgment or... Um, or we don't uh, discern all that. I'm not sure that I, I agree with that, or that may not be true. <clears throat> but there's a kind of listening in which we're not we're not just listening with the mind, but we're listening from a deeper place. And uh, I want to read a poem from Rumi in which he talks about this uh, two kinds of intelligence. Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi was a Persian poet, uh, 12th century, I believe. And, um, and he says, there are two kinds of intelligence. One acquired, as a child in school, memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional sciences as well as from the new sciences. With such intelligence, you rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. You stroll with this intelligence in and out of the fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablets. There is another kind of tablet, one already completed and preserved inside you, a spring overflowing its spring box, a freshness in the center of the chest. The other intelligence does not turn yellow or stagnate. It's fluid, and it doesn't move from outside to inside through the conduits of plumbing learning. This second knowing is a fountainhead from within you, moving out. 
I've, I've found in my years of practice that a lot of practice is about trusting that second kind of knowing and attuning to it. And mindfulness practice is a way that we do that because mindfulness practice is not... Um, although, although we learn a lot about it and we hear a lot about it and we get a lot of instructions about it, you know, which is helpful and necessary, the actual practice of mindfulness is non-conceptual. Um, and it's and it's a direct knowing. <clears throat> I'd like to just reflect uh, a little bit on motivation in practice. What motivates us to, to do this? Why, why are you here? Why did you come? And um, and an answer might come, you know. Well, I read about I read about it somewhere, or I heard about mindfulness. I heard about meditation. And I know some of you are more experienced. I guess I'm talking particularly to the new people. Um, but it's always we we can always be looking at our motivation and and uh, be reconnecting with our motivation and. And also, as we as we uh, evolve in practice, our motivation changes, and um, and so that's also important to note and to be aware of. Um, so, why am I here? Why are we can be asking ourselves? So something something gave rise to your decision to come to do this retreat. Um, maybe maybe there is something. Sometimes people talk about a um, a kind of a a longing, a deep uh, a kind of direction that they've always felt uh, all their lives in some way, or or they they came to be aware of at a certain point in their life to to um, to become truly ourselves, to become truly who uh, who you deeply are, whatever that is, not even knowing uh, what necessarily that is. So um, it might be, uh, and many of us experience this, that um, just there's so much pain and suffering in, in your life, in, in our lives. And um, and there's this this uh, resolution, a kind of a determination that arises of um, I need to find a way out. I need to find a different way. You know, it's certainly something that I experienced uh, way back when I first began practice, and um, there's an enormous amount of fear that was present in my in my mind, in my, in how I was living, it was driving me, and uh, I just thought uh, I have to do something. And somebody told me about meditation. Thought I said maybe it'll help. 
And I think also um, uh, sometimes we're motivated, part of our motivation may be uh, knowing somebody, meeting somebody, or having somebody in our lives at some point who really modeled um, compassion, you know, modeled a, uh, a quality of presence, uh, wisdom, that was uh, inspiring. It's one of the things that inspired the Buddha when he uh, was kind of moving away from, uh, he was in this process of, of exploring, uh, you know, his life and, and what, he lived a very protected and, and uh, privileged and fortunate life and um, or at least privileged uh, with all kinds of sensual pleasures and and he began he he began to explore outside his immediate environment and and encountered people's suffering you know suffering of somebody being sick of of somebody you know Aging and losing their capacities, and somebody dying, and um, and so he uh, he recognized that that the happiness the happiness he was seeking couldn't be found just in the sense sensory pleasures that he was he had so such an abundance of in his uh, <coughs> life as a very wealthy young man. And um, and then he saw, in the distance, a, um, an ascetic, a, a, a seeker, a sramana, walking across the field, and and um, and he was deeply touched by this person's presence and their collectedness, and uh, and he said, "That's my way. That's that's the way for me to discover the answer to what." questions I'm asking about suffering. And so um, so he was inspired by just the quality of being of somebody that he saw. And so that, that can that can motivate us because that awakens faith, you know, when we see that somebody has this quality of being. Um, I think, oh wow, that's possible for me. To, uh, to perhaps uh, experience that. So, so it's good to it's good to ask to connect with our motivation for practice and and to um, uh, to be fueled by that. <clears throat> So out of the Buddha's seeking to uh, find, well, what, it, what are, you know, what, why is, what is the suffering that I'm seeing around me and, and, and what are some of the solutions? Is there an answer? You know, is there, is there some way to understand this, to be free of it, to be free of it within myself, to, to, uh, to stop creating suffering around me in the world? Um, 
And, um, and so this teaching on mindfulness that, that we're, we're exploring, that we're practicing and learning, uh, arose from that, that search and from his awakening. And, and mindfulness actually in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years or so has, has become something that's, you know, as you know, it's, it's, it's quite, um, it's, it's quite culturally widespread, in, in, at least in terms of being talked about and, um, and being uh, communicated, you know, in, in hospital settings, in schools. Um, and, and, and mindfulness is not the whole of insight meditation, but it's, it's a very central practice. So, so what is mindfulness? And I've talked about it already. And I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to repeat things. Um, it's you'll you'll notice as as you go to different teachers and retreats and so on that that um, there's a lot of repetition actually of the teachings. Uh, you know, maybe in slightly different ways, uh, different angles, because the teachings themselves are not really that complicated. They're it's really, uh, I've had this experience so many times that, um, that somebody who's been practicing with me for a long time, and I know I've said something, you know, many, many times, they've heard it many times, they'll say, I just got something, I just really understood something, and, and, and they'll say something you know, in their own words about something that, you know, I know I've been communicating and probably they've read in books and heard on tapes and from other teachers. And I think, wow, that's really amazing. That's, that's great. <laughs> you know, that because it's, because we learn it, it's not about, you know, it's going back to what I was saying before, it's not about repeating something or giving back in, in our own words like we learn in school. It's really seeing it directly in our experience, um, you know, whether it's the causes of suffering or freedom from suffering or the truth of impermanence. Um, so, so what is mindfulness? Um, so it's present moment attention. So sometimes people might say. Mindfulness is living in the present moment, um, which is partly true, but it's not enough because I have a dog and she lives in the present moment <laughs> very much. So, but she's also very driven by greed and uh, fear, and so she's, she's, not, she's not aware. Uh, of her experience in the present moment. Um, so, uh, so there's an awareness that we're in an experience. The awareness uh, of whatever it is that's arising. Um, joy, appreciation, uh, love, uh, greed, fear, 
whatever it is, um, we're aware. We're aware of it. And so, so in meditation, the this awakening to awareness of our present moment experience is very, very key. Because when we're not aware of of our experience, we're being driven by it. Um, so, so we may we may be in an experience of, um, you know, like I was talking last night about, you know, a mental mind storm, you know, of some argument that's happening in our mind, and and so. We may be lost in that feeling, you know, intense feelings. And then we become aware of it. And we can become aware of the feelings that are there, you know, that have come up just because of all that mental activity. So this happens many times in meditation. We awaken from being lost. We awaken into our present moment experience. And and the, the samatha practice, the coming back to just this breath, helps us to develop this capacity to be present. So another thing that mindfulness means is um, to be aware of what is skillful and what is not skillful. So the word sati, which is in, in Pali, is the word that, that uh, we have translated into mindfulness. And again, there's so much is lost in translation because um, the whole sense of remembering, actually the word remembering, the members of the body, it has a very body sense to it, whereas mindfulness really is about mind. And people, you know, people misinterpret the word mindfulness, and they think it's about, you know, understanding something. I mean, it is understanding is part of it, but it's 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 about realizing. You know, it's about in a very embodied way being paying attention, being present. So this sati is is really remembering, and and we're remembering what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, you know. So the the precepts when I talked about the precepts, you know, using um, uh, enacting within our body, speech, and mind um, harmful intentions, harmful actions, harmful words uh, is unwholesome and it leads to suffering. It leads to our own suffering and it leads to the suffering of others. And so so sati, part of mindfulness, is is being aware of that and remembering it and knowing this way, if I if I just you know, just go Going along with the greed, going along with the anger, getting carried al- along by it—that's the direction of suffering. Um, and 
and turning, actually turning toward it and becoming aware of it, that's the direction of freedom and freedom from suffering. So, um, so in, in mindfulness, we, we notice when the mind is lost and we notice what it is to wake up from being lost. And we notice the difference. What does it feel like to be lost? What does it feel like to wake up? So this practice of mindfulness brings us to a direct knowing. Simple and non-conceptual knowing. Knowing sensation as sensation knowing an emotional state as what it is, knowing a thought as simply being a thought. Um. I want to uh, read a paragraph from John Kabat-Zinn, um, and some of you might recognize the name, and he is he is really the founder of the whole secular mindfulness movement, uh, mindfulness in, in uh, health context, mindfulness in education, and so on. <clears throat> and it's from a, an article called Awareness of Suffering. You might ask yourself at some point when you find yourself hurting, is my awareness of my suffering, suffering? Is my awareness of my suffering, suffering? You understand? Like, is the awareness suffering? You might try looking at what is arising in your experience in a moment of suffering and sustain the looking for a few moments longer than you feel comfortable with. As if you were dipping your toe in the water with a light and gentle touch, but you're still determining to feel what is here and apprehend the quality of your awareness. With practice, you might try extending the exploration over longer periods so that your investigation of what we identify as suffering has a chance to stabilize in awareness. It would be good to try this out on a number of different occasions. This is a way to befriend unpleasant and difficult experiences. You could investigate anxiety in a similar, in a moment of fear in a similar way by asking, is my awareness of my fear my trepidation, my worry, my anxiety. Is it frightened? And then looking deeply. Or you could investigate a moment of pain by asking, is my awareness of pain in pain? Or is my awareness of my sadness sad? My depression depressed? Or my feeling worthless? Worthless. Of course, it's best to do this when the feeling is strong and not as a theoretical or conceptual exercise. 
I'm not saying that this is easy, nor am I saying it will magically make anything better. It's not supposed to, but it's a way, it is a way to work with enormous pain and harm in potentially transformative and liberative, liberate, liberative ways. And as a next step, you might then experiment with dropping the my altogether and see how that feels, so that it's no longer my suffering, my anxiety, my sadness. In other words, letting go of the selfing, which simply means to be aware of it. Perhaps you're getting the sense that awareness can, in a moment, turn the tables on our deepest beliefs about our experience as we investigate the full extent of that experience, as opposed to merely living in a habitual reactivity colored and perpetuated by old, worn-out patterns of thought with little or no awareness. Oh, is in the awareness, in the mindfulness of fear, is that mindfulness fearful? So the, the fear is an object within mindfulness. But isn't the mindfulness free of fear? There's an image in the, in the Buddhist discourses that's used to talk about this space of awareness, which is that imagine, imagine someone taking pots of paint, you know, big pots of Sherwin-Williams paint or something, you know, red, blue, and green, and throwing them up into the air. Now, does it stick in the air? So mindfulness has that quality, you know, except that the space has a knowing quality to it, that, that there's a knowing of the experience that air doesn't know. <clears throat> but there's a quality in which we, we can see the arising of the red color paint, the blue color paint, and yet it's it's not tainted by it. So the Buddha said that the Dharma, he called the Dharma the path to the liberation from suffering. And um, and and he his, you know, I, 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 I'm not being. Um, I, we talk a lot about suffering, you know, we Buddhists, we Buddhist teachers, Buddhist practitioners, because we begin to see that it's very present in our lives, and that it drives us. There's a lot of drivenness by suffering. And we also begin to see the possibility of freedom from suffering. And the kind of the freedom, the kind of suffering that the Buddha said we can be free of, John Kabat-Zinn points to as, as adventitious suffering. 
So what does that mean, adventitious? It means that it's added on. It comes from the outside. It's not intrinsic. So I don't want to be glib and say, yeah, well, we can all be free of suffering. Because human life, um, there's pain. There's, there's, uh, uh, there's loss. There's, there's sickness. There's aging. There's um, uh, separ- being separated from those you love. There's being in situations where you're put together with people that you find really difficult to be with. Uh, and uh, there's uh, getting things that you don't want and there's losing things that you want uh, or not getting what you want. So all of these things are, are painful and, um, and of course there are, there's hunger, there's war, there's violence of all kinds. And so, so you know, uh, I certainly don't want to trivialize, you know, the, uh, the human experience of pain and suffering um, by saying, well, we can all be free of suffering. Or even, or even that phrase that, that is sometimes said, you know, you know, there's... Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Because um, uh, I think that there are experiences which are really just very difficult and we, we, uh, we need to have compassion and recognize that and, um, uh, and, not, and not be glib about it. But, but, there is a, um, but there is something really, really important that the Buddha is saying that that we have an opportunity to change our relationship to suffering, um, that we have an opportunity to, uh, to, to be with it in a way which, in which we, we are knowing it and we are receiving it and we are um, uh, bringing awareness to it, that we don't have to be totally imprisoned by it, locked locked into it or or driven by it um, and each one of us has our particular and very personal experiences uh, in which we can which we can bring to this laboratory uh, this uh, this experiment that that Buddhist practice calls us to do with with our experience of suffering, and um, the, the Buddha, the Buddha said that uh, you know life, life shoots many arrows at us, and um, and and those can't be avoided. But what do so many of us do? We turn around, and then we shoot ourselves with an arrow. You know, the arrow of, you know, oh, I'm so stupid. Or, you know, I'm so, I'm cursed. Or, you know, why do I always, why does this always happen to me? Or, um, uh, 
you know, if only I had been born somebody else. Um, and so, so these kinds of thoughts are uh, are just adding a layer of suffering. Those are the adventitious suffering, blaming ourselves, blaming others, creating uh, hatred for somebody against somebody because you know they did this to me. And so um, and so so we have we have the option of um, of looking at our experience and we have the option of of uh, of turning toward the suffering and um, and 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 what we recognize and, and how mindfulness is uh, is so precious, such a precious practice in this is that when we actually look at whatever it is, whether it's fear or anger or grief or or grasping, um, self-judgment, judgment of others, um, when we when we bring mindfulness to it, when we turn toward it, um, we discover some something extremely liberating. That 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 experience is is not solid and it's not permanent. And that as we are present with it, it will arise and it will pass away. Um, so impermanence is is one of the insights that arises into our awareness in insight meditation, and um, and uh, and impermanence uh, applies to everything that we can experience through through the mind and body. You know, there's nothing, nothing that that you can think of. I, I invite you to try to think of anything that we can experience through the mind or body that's not impermanent. Um, you know, a, a delicious meal is impermanent. A um, uh, an argument is impermanent. Uh, a fear is impermanent. Uh, a walk in the woods. And the feelings that we feel as we walk in the woods are all impermanent. And so impermanence um, is something that we can, in a way, when we're, when we're experiencing something that's really difficult, painful, it's, it's something that we can know and, in a sense, take refuge in, in knowing that, you know, that... Um, yeah, just let me just let me be with this fear. But just let me be with this anger, and it will move through me. It will change. It will move through me. It will it will dissipate. It will fade away. Um, and then there'll be a space. And it's also something that we come in our wisdom as we grow in wisdom and maturity and practice. That we we also recognize about about pleasant and beautiful experiences. This 
this beautiful meditation. You know, I'm so calm. I'm so, I feel so balanced. You know, my the mind is finally quiet. Ah, maybe this will last forever. And and so, and wisdom tells us, or you know, experience teaches us that no, it doesn't. It doesn't last forever. It can be restorative. It can be, you know, it's very healing to the, these these beautiful experiences of a kind of a a collectedness of mind and a and a settledness of the body. These can be really very beautiful and healing. Um, and we can't hold on to them. So, so impermanence is just uh, something that is present in, in all our experience. <clears throat> the Buddha said, not seeing impermanence is ignorance. Now, seeing it is the doorway to wisdom. And he, and he also said, it's better to live a single day seeing impermanence than a hundred years not seeing it. Um, and, uh, and the Buddha used to talk about, he, he, he described his practice uh, to his students. And he said that when he was, when he was practicing uh, meditation before his awakening, and he would see, um, he would see the arising of of greed or the arising of anger. You know, he would stop in the middle of what he was doing. You know, he would just stop and turn his whole attention to, you know, seeing it arise and manifest and pass away. So, so seeing that these these mental states arise and pass away, and we can, going back to talking about mindfulness in the body, we can we can we can experience it so clearly in the body when we turn our attention to the body, and and we're you know we're aware perhaps of of anger arising, and then we're you know we train ourselves to. You know, to to explore well, what is this in the body? How do I feel this anger in the body, or this fear, or this grasping in the body? And then we, you know, we turn and we can, it can be experienced so clearly in the body arising and and passing away. So, so if uh, you know, if you if you see one of uh, your fellow yogis walking outside and then. And then all of a sudden they stop, you know, and they're just stuck still. You, you know that maybe they're, perhaps they're, uh, they're turning their attention to the arising and passing away of some, some experience, some mind state, and, uh, and having a moment of insight into impermanence. So... So it's not hard to understand that things are impermanent. But what's liberating is seeing it, knowing it, knowing it directly. Um, we, 
when we when we are caught in in the um, in the energy of some you know some state of mind uh, and 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 here I'm talking about the afflictive emotions so you know when we experience joy when we experience um, appreciation when we experience love or generosity you know we we it, we want to be mindful of it we want to open to it but these are not afflictive emotions they're, they're not creating suffering they're actually bringing us into deeper connection with life and so so we're 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 opening to that and those are wholesome wholesome uh, states but you know when we're experiencing things that are more afflictive emotion which are all about me 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 I want this I don't want that um, I hate this you know I gotta have that you know those are uh, um, th- those are painful states which lead to suffering and those those you know we we want to work with them mindfully and see the arising and passing away and um, and there's an image that uh, I find very helpful. You know, when, you know, we, they're, they're not so present anymore, but there used to be these wind-up toys. You know, you'd wind, you'd wind up a toy, and um, like a little car or a little robot, you know, and, and, uh, and it would be, there'd be a spring inside, and you'd wind it up, and it would, you know, and then you'd put it on the floor, you know, and it would bump into the walls, and it would, you know, like, Turn over and you know flip over or whatever it would do and and uh, and and so that's the kind of an image of being driven by that energy those energies of um, of greed hatred and delusion and jealousy and um, uh, and judgment and so on and and then. You know, you can take the same toy, and uh, and then just hold it in your hand, and it'll it'll go, and it'll release its energy. You know, and and that's uh, kind of like the experience of just allowing, you know, that whatever it is that's arising, to be present, to be known, in mindfulness. And it, it just releases its energy. And, and then we know the freedom from that. And that, that quality of, um, of knowing the, the release of the energy and the, and the, uh, and of the, the space after it's released is um, the Buddha called the liberated mind. So... So it doesn't mean that the mind is liberated forever, but in that moment, the mind is liberated. And so we can all know that experience of the liberated mind in that moment, just just by uh, turning toward our <coughs> that which is um, <coughs> afflicting us. So, um, so when we when we really get it, when we really 
uh, take it in through this direct knowing that that there's nothing that is permanent, nothing that's pleasant that's permanent, nothing that's unpleasant that's permanent. What really changes us, you know, we 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 come to realize that you know we can't look to a relationship or a job or getting a new house or you know um, moving to a new a new place. We can't look to that for our deep fulfillment, for any kind of ultimate fulfillment. You know, it's all going to be you know, changing, it's going to be a mixed bag, it's going to be some pleasant things or some unpleasant things. And, uh, and so, so we, we develop a capacity to, to be with things as they are. We, we know that, that things change, that we can't count on things being the way we want all the time. Um, and, It also gives us the courage to be with that which is unpleasant, Uh, to courageously and compassionately, you know, with an open heart, turn to our to our experience. And um, there's another poem, also by Rumi, that that speaks to that attitude of of opening to everything in our lives. And uh, and being being present with them, being present with whatever arises, not only with an attitude of of acceptance, but with this uh, openness to not knowing, to not knowing what comes next, to not knowing um, what this will lead to, what to not knowing. Um, you know, uh, necessarily how to respond in this moment, and just and just staying open until we do know how to respond. So, um, so this poem, and it's it's one of Rumi's best-known poems. So maybe you've heard it before. It's called the Guest House. And it goes, this being human, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes. 
because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So that that metaphor of inviting each guest in, inviting each guest into our mindfulness. So not inviting each guest into to drive us, not allowing each guest to uh, to push us around, but to invite them in and be interested. Who are you? What are you? How are you present here with me? And uh, and learn, learn from that. I'll um, I'll end with uh, another another uh, little quote from or a paragraph from John Kabat-Zinn. Mm. Uh, first, first of all, he quotes Viktor Frankl in um, in his from his book *Man's Search for Meaning*, which is a very profound work, if you haven't read it, um, describes his experience in a Nazi concentration camp. And Frankel says, everything can be taken from a human being, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, and I, I would say the essential human freedom, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And then a short paragraph from John Kabat-Zinn. The beauty of the mind that knows itself. We could say that all of the greatest works of art and culture and science, the contents of museums and libraries throughout the world, and what unfolds in concert halls and between the covers of great works of literature and poetry, stems from the human mind that knows itself to one degree or another, or that is at least interested in exploring the interface between knowing and not knowing. 
On the other hand, throughout human history, all of the most horrific atrocities and horrors that one person or group of, or nation or tribe has perpetuated on another or on itself also stems from that same human mind when it does not know itself, when it refuses to look at itself in relationship to the whole and actively, often cynically, chooses narrowly defined self-interest, greed, animosity, delusion, violence, and mindlessness over awareness, mindfulness, and the sense of interconnectedness, cooperativity, and kindness that naturally unfolds from a more mindful and heartful way of seeing, knowing, and being in the world. As we have seen, we have countless opportunities to step out of the well-worn storyline of our thinking and of getting hijacked by our emotions and our ideas and our opinions, our likes and dislikes, and indeed, to rest in awareness. Our own awareness has the capacity to free us, at least for one timeless moment, from the toxic elements of thought and emotion and the habit-driven driven suffering that usually arises from them when they are unmet, unexamined, and unwelcomed in awareness. So let's just take a couple of minutes to, to sit and come become present in the body. whatever is unfolding in the body in this moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.